Hello, and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the new weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm going to keep saying this is a new podcast until episode 20. This is episode 19, so we're almost there. It's Thursday, August 27th, 2020. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of the museum. Liz is still out of the office, so you've got me in the host chair, but as always, Ryan is backing me up in the producer chair. This week, we're talking about branding and about designing brand identity. We'll dive into the concept of branding and what it means and how designers work to craft successful, authentic brand identities across multiple touch points in all five senses. I'm gonna be joined by an awesome guest co-host, Jennifer Bryan. She's the founding partner and creative director at Think Jewel in Portland, Oregon. And we'll be joined by a special guest, Michael DeTulo. He's an award-winning industrial designer who thinks a lot about design and brands. Plus, we'll have our weekly dose of good design. First, two quick things from the Design Museum. We're now less than a month away from Design Night Live, our special virtual event celebrating design and the design community. Be sure to get your tickets. They're free for members, or you can get your ticket and a membership for $60. That comes with the Design Museum magazine as well. So it's pretty cool. And it all goes to support the Design Museum and our work. So you can learn more at designnightlive.org. And also, if you're not a member of Design Museum or a subscriber to Design Museum magazine, be sure to join soon since the fall issue of Design Museum magazine is coming soon. It's all about workplace innovation and it's packed with insights and articles about the new normal at work. You are not gonna wanna miss it. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org, click on membership in the main menu. Okay, let's get into it. Take a second and look around you and you'll likely see brands and branding everywhere. Just in my little makeshift studio here, I see a bunch of brands just staring back at me. And this week we're talking about branding, a word that probably has as many definitions as the word design. Brands play an important role in our lives and are likely one, if not the most important element uh, for a business or organization. You've also probably heard about the importance of building your personal brand. Design is a big part of branding because so much of brands is visual, strategic, and must be intentional in order to be effective. Today, we're gonna be exploring branding from a few different angles, what it means, how it manifests, and how designers create and maintain successful brands. To discuss, we have a special guest co-host. Jennifer Bryan is the founding partner and creative director at Think Jewel, a brand strategy firm. Jennifer brings over 20 years of design strategy and brand development leadership to the work at Think Jewel. And when she's not creating the next great brand, she also serves on the Design Museum's board of directors. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you, Sam. I'm so happy to stop by. Oh, yeah, I love it. This is how we connect now. This is how we socialize. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Thanks for being here. I want to start with the million dollar question. What is branding? Oh, we're going to go right into it. Then. Let's get right into right it. into it. Okay. Well, can I flip it on its head? Please. Because I think that there can be a bit of a misconception out there about what brand is. So what I'd like to say is what brand is not and Perfect. brand is not a logo. I think that there's <laughs> this perception out there that if I have a logo, I have a brand and you know, it's so much more than that. You know, if I have a, you know, if I have a color palette and a website and a brochure and merchandise and even my tagline and my, uh, you know, my unique value proposition, I think I have a brand, but really those are assets, right? Those are your brand assets. Those are elements and they, they come to be symbols of your brand. And I think that they become associations that 
you know, people have with your brand and you want that, that's the ultimate goal, right? But really, um, brand is an experience. Mm. Brand is like an emotional connection. It's creating affinity. There's an old adage out there that brand is not what you say about yourself. It's what others say about you. So it's about building trust. It's about building credibility. It's about, um, you know, your reputation and perception. Yeah. Yeah. You got me thinking like, does brand truly just exist like in the minds of your call it customers, audience, like, but is that where a brand lives? Is it in our minds? Oh, I hope it's in your heart and in your soul. That's where I want your brand to be. Um, my business partner and I met in the world of philanthropy. And as you know, in the world of philanthropy, the most important thing you have is your mission and your story and how that resonates with your target audience. And you really want brand to resonate. You have to be authentic. And uh, you know, the goal is to inspire people. For a 501c3, you have to get them to want to volunteer. You have to get them to want to donate. You have to get them to want to evangelize and advocate for you. And um, if you can take that philosophy and tell great stories grounded in vision and mission and uh, uh, values, then I think that's where you really touch people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and I, w- I want to get into those then elements of like how it manifests. You know, certainly logos are one of that. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your process. I mean, Think Jewel is always creating these amazingly visual brands, websites, and like strategies around um, how organizations are telling their story. Can you share like maybe how you approach a project at the beginning, like when you're like, okay here's a brand or here's a need for a brand? Uh, You know, to make it meaningful, to make it matter, you have to uh, dive into discovery, right? It's every branding exercise starts with a deep dive into discovery. Um, if If you imagine a dinner plate, okay, so visualize a dinner plate and that is brand. And then you imagine a dime and that's your logo. And I'm not trying to say that a logo is not important, more that um, just because you have a logo doesn't mean you have a brand. Just because you have a website doesn't mean you have a brand. Those are elements. Yeah, that's really interesting. So so say someone comes to you and maybe it's a small business. Um, they don't have a logo. They don't have a brand. That discovery phase, what are you doing with them to try to like tease that out? Well, early in my career, I was gifted a fabulous book by Marty Neumeyer, The Brand Gap. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it, it breaks it all down, right? It's about, he, he gets into brand attribute and equity and essence and your image and uh, you know, story and strategy. So really, every time we start with any client, it doesn't matter if you're a big corporation, if you have a deep pockets, or if you're a small organization, we start with a deep dive into discovery. Because ultimately, what we're trying to answer is, what is our purpose? We want to get to the root of who you are, first and foremost. You know, who are we? What do we stand for? What do we value? What do our customers value? We need to know who your customer is. Right, because you're like having to absorb the story, right? And then develop this strat, you know, brand strategy and assets that then are going to tell that story to the world. 
Discovery always leads us to strategy, like that foundational mm. strategy document, because um, hopefully then all the decisions you're making around the aesthetic of the brand, whether it's about color or typography, why are you using a modern font? Why are you using an old classic style font? Um, you know, photographic treatment, how you stylize photos, whether they're black and white or super saturated, all of those start to inform the mood and the vibe and the feel of your brand. I mean, color, color communicates so much specific emotion. What other assets are there to branding that maybe people don't think about? Like we talked about, everyone knows, yeah. like logo certainly, but what else is on that dinner plate? Okay, well, you know, I think that branding is not solely a visual form of communication, mm, right? Mm -hmm. So we are multidimensional people. We have five senses. And when you can engage all the five senses and design experiences around all the five senses, then, um, you know, it just becomes more impactful and more memorable. There's a study uh, that uh, out of... Um, Oh, out of uh, Rockefeller University, right? So clinical biomedical research, they do clinical research at the graduate school level. And they did a study on um, retention and memory and your senses, right? And so 1% of what we touch, 2% uh, of what we hear, 5% of what we see, 15% of what we taste, and 35% of what we smell, oh my goodness. we retain. So smell being the most sensitive receptor, triggering, you know, the greatest memories. And, you know, you can just think back, you walk in a room and you smell something, it can transport you to your childhood, you know, so quickly. I'm going to say, have you ever designed like a smell for a brand? Well, that's we've, so fascinating. We've, we've, we've worked with architects and interiors to really think about where to position the coffee shop, right? Yeah, yeah. Thinking about, talking about how they wanted the office worker to, you know, have that experience walking in. Yeah, I love the work you all do around uh, branding in the built environment. I mean, it really creates a sense of place, which I think is something that's lacking a lot of times, right? In the built environment where, you know, our... Our neighborhoods and our cities um, are starting to kind of get homogenized, and it's just great when really good like spatial branding and experience takes root. We, you know, we love it when we can uh, collaborate early on in a project and really integrate into the project rather than layering on at the end. And we we hit projects at different stages, but when we can get in in the beginning, that's where we can really shine because then it yeah. doesn't feel like it's layered on top as an afterthought, but it's infused into everything. Um, and it just creates a much richer, more holistic experience. Yeah, yeah. And this is reminding me um, of another element or asset of branding that I know you, you've worked on, which is naming, just naming period, right? Like the written word. Um, how do you tackle something like that where, you know, whether it's a new real estate development or yeah. a new product, it is. That's got to be a lot of fun it's too. Like coming up with names. One of the hardest things. One of <laughs> yeah. the hardest things we do. <laughs> I bet. Um, because there's so much subjectivity to naming, so much subjectivity, right? 
And, and so, um, again, it starts with strategy. It starts with research. It starts with understanding the stakeholders. We want to know what the business goals are, what the market demand is, uh, what the position of the, of the space is, the location. Take all of that into consideration. Um, and, again, trying to remove subjectivity as much as possible. If you think of uh, brand names that you're familiar with, um, they don't, it's like, it's like a logo. It doesn't come to mean anything until you have all the experiences with it, right? And I think that oftentimes when you're in a naming project, people expect the name to be that right out of the gate. And they yeah. can't, so you have to set them up to take them on the journey of what it can become, not necessarily what it is today. And I always, you know, it's like if you sat in a room and said, uh, uh, oh, we have this luxury hotel. Let's name it the W. You know, you, people would say, what's the W? What is that? Um, so it's really about creating the whole experience around it. So naming is the same thing. It is, it's the hardest thing that we do in our business, I would say. And, and it's oftentimes it's like someone's baby, you know? So it's like naming someone's child on their behalf. <laughs> yeah, in our last few minutes before we take a break and then bring Michael in, I wonder if you could share... Um, you know, a couple of your favorite brands and why they stick out to you. Oh, okay. Favorite brands. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, it's interesting. It's like, it's like a favorite child. It depends on the day, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like this kid today. Um, you know, I think as designers as, and, and, you know, you put something out in the world and you hope that it resonates with people, right? You, you, you want it to, uh, you know, you want people to care about it. You want it to, you know, aspirationally even be culturally relevant. And so, um, and then, you know, that brand comes to really symbolize or the, the logo and everything comes to symbolize the brand. And then mm -hmm. we're asking people to have affinity with that, that thing. Right. And so um, I really think it's, it's about, you know, those brands that really tell their story, you know, favorite brands. Can I tell you one that irritates me a little bit. Oh yeah. I love it. You're all about flipping my questions and I'm, okay. I'm here for it. <laughs> I'll tell you one that irritates me. Okay. So, um, you know, I think that we have affinity with brand and the hope is that, you know, you have affinity with the logo. The logo comes to symbolize that. And so then when somebody goes to a brand refresh, sometimes it flips on your head, what your relationship is with that organization, right? And sometimes that logo can change, like you look at Starbucks and how it's changed over the years, um, and then you get used to it and it doesn't matter anymore. And sometimes they change the logo and you've never gotten over the fact that they changed the logo, <laughs> right? And so for me, um, Instagram is a little bit like that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because it was that little brownie, the little Polaroid. It. it was so sweet and special and whimsical and charming. And it really, uh, you know, personified what the brand I thought stood for. And then it got all high tech and Silicon yep. Valley and kind of up with itself and flat UI and uh, just sort of uninteresting. Like if you're swiping through your phone, sometimes you don't even, you swipe right past it. Mm -hmm. But the one that really irritated me was Uber. When <laughs> yeah. Uber oh my their, gosh. <laughs> went the Uber worst. Through their rebrand. Mm -hmm. They've yeah, had was... three brand iterations. It's the one in the middle that, that, kind of threw me off, right? So yeah. you think about the original Uber logo, and I don't know if you can picture it in your mind. I still can. Yeah, I remember it. Um, but it's, you know, it harkens back to the late great Milton Glaser, right? As you think about the I Heart New York logo, that's a slab serif font. Well, mm -hmm. the original Uber 
logo was like a U that felt like a slab serif. And what that mm -hmm. communicates is something that's kind of quirky and everyman and approachable, right? And so, uh, you know, Uber gave us a crash course in the gig economy. It was, you know, disrupted how we did transportation. It was about the everyman. It was the of the people, by the people, for the people. I can call up my car wherever I want. I can set my own hours. And it was so approachable. And then that in-between brand uh, that I what Travis Kalanick, I think, was a CEO. Yeah. And I read this article even that he... Um, he said, I don't really know anything about brand, but I've taken this on as my pet project. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the logo became um, like this bit and Adam, and it was supposed to represent uh, the building blocks of technology. And it just was so self-important. And, so, and they became a, a high tech company and that's what he yeah. was trying to communicate. But right. it shifted away from the everyman to being all about the company. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it was such a miss. I just, I still love that original logo. Yeah. Their newest great. logo's better, but. Yeah, they've improved. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It was a great uh, crash course in branding. Oh, um, thank you. That was fun. <laughs> I don't get to talk about it that much. <laughs> I know, right? Just doing it all the time. Listeners, <laughs> check out Think Jewel to learn more about Jennifer and her team's work designing and implementing great brands. Visit thinkjewel.com. And Jennifer, please stick around and we'll bring Michael DeTulo into this conversation. If you like Design is Everywhere, you'll love our upcoming special event, Design Night Live. Join us on September 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern for Design Night Live, a Saturday night filled with design sketches, games, prizes, familiar faces, a silent auction, and more. During this interactive virtual event, attendees from all over will come together to celebrate design, community, and innovation. We'll be sharing the vision and impact of Design Museum Everywhere and hear from designers from around the world about the designs they can't live without. Join Design Museum on September 19th for a night filled with inspiring company, hands-on demonstrations, and incredible prizes. Tickets are just $60 and they include a year-long membership. Plus, Design Museum members attend for free. Get your tickets today at designnightlive.org. And we're back and we're joined by a special guest. Michael DeTulo is an award-winning industrial designer who runs his own studio designing pretty much everything from footwear to consumer electronics. He's done vehicles, he's done strategy, and yes, he's done branding. Michael has over 20 years of experience working with and designing for the world's top brands, including Nike, Intel, Honda, Google, and more. I literally cannot list them all. So there's a couple. <laughs> uh, here's a clip of Michael talking about applying brand language in product design. So what is a design language? You know, at its core, it's really just a, a set of agreed upon uh, ingredients that make up a brand. And that sounds pretty simple, right? But the key underlying part is agreed upon. Uh, and, you know, the design language itself is a, a really simple thing, but getting to that agreed upon part is typically months and months of corporate therapy. Great stuff. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, Sam. So good to be here. I always love talking to you. So. Oh, thanks. So, Michael, we're, we're chatting branding here with Jennifer, and I wonder if I can pose the same question I posed to her. Can you define branding for us? 
I mean, everything that your company does is in some way, shape or form branding. Um, and again, coming from the, the product end of the spectrum, your really your your biggest piece of branding, your biggest piece of marketing is going to be the product, right? Long long after they've you know seen the advertisement, went to your website, made a purchase, opened up the package, thrown out the packaging. What's left six months later is the product. So if there's any daylight, if there's any dissonance in between the brand strategy and the product strategy that's not going to sit well with people. Uh, and people are extremely smart now. They're, they're, even, if, even if they're not thinking, I mean, consumers aren't thinking about branding or product design, but they know when something doesn't feel right. And uh, I always say, you know, there used to be a time, I think in the 50s and 60s, when, when consumers judged brands by their, their best moments. So, oh yeah, maybe like, Chevy wasn't the best car, but like they made the Corvette and isn't that cool? And I'm going to buy one too. And, and in today's age, I think it's the exact inverse where um, I think people judge a brand by its worst moment. So if they go to your website and they're like, oh, it just doesn't feel right or the UX isn't right or there's this, you know, there's this big grand brand mission and like the logo doesn't seem to like embody that like people are just going to pick up with that and move on i wonder how you've applied branding in the design of objects like how has that worked for you in your career i think when i was developing the design language for um, definitive technology which is a really high-end audio brand kind of like two thousand to fifteen thousand dollar pairs of speakers um you know, it was really working with the engineers and pulling out the the less technical terms, you know, like, okay, what makes these speakers special? Well, they can like reproduce like the full frequency range of sound from like the highest pitches to the lowest. And they can do that really crisply and really precisely and sharp and like all these, so not like I have crisp, I have precise, I have sharp. Yeah. The yeah, form, yeah. the form language has to be those things. So the form language was super rectilinear. The material palette was just like black or machined aluminum. And that went to the, the logo that I inherited with that brand was terrible. It didn't embody <laughs> any of those things. It was like MS, like paint, like script font, definitive technology, <laughs> terrible. And I was like, look, we have to rebrand because here's, here's all the keywords that you're telling me that this product is. I'm, I'm doing that in the product design language. And I was like, and there's just no way I'm putting that brand mark on here. You're going to undo all the work I did. So we need to rebrand and it's going to make the company better. So the brand mark that we, and we, we moved towards was incredibly simple. It took a long time to get there as it always does, but the, the brand mark was just literally a D it was like a box, you know, with two rounded corners making a D with a period. And it was like, what could be more definitive than that? Right. Yeah, like, this cool. is doesn't even say the name. Uh, for us, it's the same thing, like inviting that collaboration and getting those multiple perspectives because you always get a nugget from somebody. Everyone comes at it from a different point of view. And so when you can get all the stakeholders in the room and really deep dive into what the different, uh, you know, motivators are and 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 how they see it it's sometimes that's where the 
the magic happens. You get that gold nugget that you didn't even know you were looking for. Just by, <laughs> sometimes it's a off the cuff comment that somebody makes. So do you, how do you structure those? And, and then there's always the other opposite side of that is cooks in the kitchen. And sometimes that can unravel things. <laughs> so <laughs> striking that balance. Yeah. I think I, I like to think in terms of like the whole, um, I love a good, um, racy diagram, you know, it's racy is like, uh, responsible, accountable, consulted and, and informed. So I love bringing in different stakeholders and, and letting them know where they fall on that. Of like, <laughs> so like, you know, I'm responsible for this. Um, you know, you, you know, a uh, uh, key stakeholder might be accountable for it. Um, they're, you know, I'm pulling you in to consult you, you know, and, and then that's it. You don't get to decide you get to, you get to consult. Um, at, but at some point somebody needs to decide. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember at Converse, they tried to rebrand. I mean, the Chuck Taylor logo has like been around for almost a hundred years. Uh, and somebody, somebody wanted to, you know, make an ego statement and redesign it. And, uh, I, I was a footwear design director at the time and I just refused. I was like, I'm not putting that on the product. And they're like, well, you have to, we're using it against across all the brand, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, I guess you guys will look really dumb then when it's on the advertisement, <laughs> That's it. it's not on the product because this is a piece of history mm -hmm. and we, we can't just change it because we feel like it. Yeah. Don't um, mess with perfection. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that, that logo is, is very strange, but that's okay. You know, it, one of my, one of my good friends is a VP of marketing over at Titleist and he was sorry to out you, Josh, but he was saying how uh, a lot of his, his uh, designers struggle using that logo. Cause it's very, when you really look at it, it's very strange. And mm -hmm. the, the story behind the logo is amazing. I mean, the founder of the brand loved his secretary's handwriting and she just wrote out Titleist. And that has oh been the, the logo for, I don't know, 50 plus years. That's and um, you can't change that. You know, no. it's like, that's so cool. And it's like, as a job, it's just, that's your job is to figure out how to work with that. <laughs> yeah. In, in the clip, you talked about design language systems. Can you talk a little about what that means in, in the context of your work? I think of a design language system as an agreed upon set of ingredients for a brand to use across basically all creative outputs. Uh, and, and really the underlined word is agreed upon um, <laughs> because if people don't agree to use it, it won't work. Uh, and, um, one of my, this, I was Michael Spillane, who used to be the CEO at Converse always said, uh, when you're, when you're building a five-year strategy, some, at some point you have to get to year two. <laughs> and, and I think as, as designers, it's always wonderful to live in kind of like the what if space and like, what could it be? But really it's only as strong as your implementation. I love that concept of agreed upon too, because that is that, that key ingredient, because it's amazing how if you just start to pick away at the corners, how quickly things can unravel and even having, uh, having one decision maker or somebody that has the authority, just, just say, this is the way it's going to be. And that's, you know, usually the best outcomes, like you can iterate and you can think and you can dream. And then I think it, we call it being strategically brave when you can just you know, stand up for that decision. And that's when the magic happens. Products end up being like such a big part of the brand, the, the one that continues and decisions and form elements 
are part of that brand as well. I remember I did I used to teach industrial design and one of my favorite projects I always assigned was choose a brand, say like Nintendo, right? Analyze the design of Nintendo products and understand it and then design a product that Nintendo doesn't make using that language. And it always struck me that that was the first time students were like, oh, right, there's like a rich history of brand imbued in these products. And you've had a unique career like designing a long-term vision for some of these brands. How do you keep that consistency going through multiple different products, different product lines? And I I do think, you know, so as a consultant, a lot of times when we're working on design languages for clients, we'll we'll do the language, we'll do kind of the playbook, like a recipe book that will help any designer. And then we'll do a few reference designs for like, okay. And and these reference designs, sometimes the client's like, why am I paying for designs of things that we're not going to make? It's like, well, these reference designs are, are basically beacons to drive towards because we're not going to get there. You're not going to, you know, reboot the product line in one year, especially some of these like like Polk had f- 400 plus models. It's not possible. Um, but you can create some concept cars that are like, this is where we're going. And mm-hmm. you're going to have to now kind of like do the the human evolution chart to get to there, right? Working directly with the CEO and possibly the owners or the board of directors. And so getting them really excited. You know, these are people that look at spreadsheets all day. <laughs> and so you need to like show them this is where we're going to be. And 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 always using the design language as a method to make decisions, right? Instead of instead of me saying like we're going to go with option B, I would ask the team which one of these best fits the design language. I remember that I hadn't when we did the design language for definitive, I hadn't um you know, I had thought of how things look, how they feel, materials, how we use the brand mark. Um, and when the first product was coming out, the first prototype came in and they started it up and it made the startup noise. And I was like, whoa, wait, wait, where did that startup noise come from? Oh, it was just what was on the chip. Like, no, no, that's like a whole, I hadn't thought of that. And uh, we had to like back up, bring in a music producer and write a startup, you know, design a startup noise. Cause you're like, this is the thing that the thing does is make noise, right? And that goes back to Jennifer's five senses. I mean, the sound. Yeah. 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 And so, so you're gonna you're gonna hear the startup noise every time you turn this thing on. We need to like this is really important. And nobody yeah. um you know, nobody thought it was important. It's so funny, but it's like um right. Right. Um, one more question on like your your career and projects. So I think you've also had a unique experience of working with athletes, right? So here you have a brand, you know, say Nike, then you also have the personality and performance, you know, of an individual, you know, Michael Jordan, like how did you merge all those brand elements then into like a shoe? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, <laughs> there's so much, uh, a, there's so much ability to kind of do storytelling on shoes and like very hidden things that would make the athlete feel great. Like I remember, and, and different athletes are different. Like, you know, Michael was really interested in every design detail and he expected <laughs> like every little thing on the shoe to have an amazing story behind it. Um, but I remember once like working with, um, but m- most of these guys are very smart and like into details. I remember working with um, Derek Jeter on a shoe and uh, 
I was just talking with him when I was kind of doing some, some foundational interviews with him and he was saying how his favorite athlete growing up was Dave Winfield. We both grew up in New York state. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I was like, Oh, Dave Winfield's number, I think is 42. I might get this wrong. This was like 15 years ago, <laughs> but Dave Winfield's <laughs> number is 42 and Derek Jeter's number was two. And so when he got the first prototype of the shoe, he was like, Hey, why are two purfs that purfs are like the little vent holes on the side? Why are two purfs different size? I was like, count the purse. And he's like, oh, okay, there's, there were 42 purse and two purse were bigger. And I'm like, so your uh, number is like within your hero's number, but just awesome. totally like deep down little thing. I worked really closely with, um, CCM hockey a couple years ago on their design language. And, uh, you know, it's the first C in CCM stands for Canadian, but you would never know from anything this company is putting out that they're Canadian and they make hockey gear. And so I based basically the whole design language around being Canadian. And they're like, why, 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 why are you going so hard on Canada? I'm like, one, it's a really good time to be Canadian. Yes. <laughs> like Canada is like winning right now. Like, definitely. <laughs> and two, like, I was like, you want the Germans to make your cars, the Americans to make your jeans, and you want the Canadians to make your hockey stuff. Come on. You know, like. Pure and simple. It's pretty simple. So the, the. And they wanted to know, they actually, they actually wanted to do a rebrand. And I was like, look, you did a rebrand like two years ago. It's just, it's too soon. The mark is not great, but it's good. And we can make it great through context. So mm -hmm. uh, I developed this simple icon of a, this black maple leaf. So that the Canadian red maple leaf, but black. And we hit it somewhere on every single product. Somewhere nice. that only if you were using it, you would find it's like the back of the tongue on the skate where you put your thumb on the hockey stick and then created this whole story around the black maple leaf as being the alter ego of the Canadian, right? The, the red <laughs> maple leaf is something that Americans sew onto their backpack when they walk through Europe right. because they want to be associated <laughs> with the nice Canadians. The black maple leaf is the persona of the Canadian on the hockey ice he's going to shoot a slap shot at a hundred miles an hour at your face, yeah. right? Something happens yeah. to these, these nice Canadians as soon as they get <laughs> on the ice and they become this like murderous horde, you know, how can I get someone to talk about this product? Right. Versus yeah, that's fine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want someone to be like, dude, check out this black maple leaf. Do you know what this is about? You know, yeah, how yeah. can I, how can I add a design element that's going to make people talk? It just seems like, you know, you're designing a razor, then you're designing footwear, then you're designing a futuristic car. Is it, is it, it's seemingly seamless as you move from these different product types. And so I was wondering, is that typical of industrial design to move from electronics to footwear to soft goods, or are you a magician? I, and, think, it, I think it's the latter. And what and is your favorite, what is your favorite industry or do you have one? I think it's not typical, but it is possible. And so I think it depends on how you view yourself. And I'm sure the same in, in your world where some people get really specialized in a vertical, in a, in a category or in an industry, uh, whether that's like financial instruments or what have you. Some people get really narrowed down and, and that's great for them. I always actually kind of envy that. I'm like, wow, I wish I could just not <laughs> get bored. Um, I'm someone that is very, I just love things I, and I like thinking about them. And I've been doing that since I was a little kid. And I, I've told this story before, um, but I always love it. Like when I was a little kid, I would open up the Sears catalog to a random page every day after school 
And if it landed on power drills or whatever, I'd just be like, what's the future of that going to be? So in a way, I've been kind of practicing for this my whole life. Um, and I, I tell clients, because clients will ask, like, why should we hire you uh, instead of a specialist, right? Like, this is one of my biggest clients, this company that makes this, these acoustic panels. I never worked on architectural wall and ceiling panels before that client. Why should we hire you instead of someone who specializes in architectural spaces? And I'm like, well, you know, I look at it as like, I'm, my my specialty is I specialize in applied creativity. And I will never know more than the client does about their industry. And that's okay. That's that's their job. Uh, my mm -hmm. job is to pull out just enough for, for me to be dangerous uh, <laughs> and, and create some like really new things and then to work collaboratively with them. Questions to wrap up for both of you. Um, I'm curious uh, if you both have either a brand or a type of brand that you would really love to help shape? Like basically like what is your dream project in the brand space? For me, so we do a lot in the real estate sector, right? And something we have never done is a hotel. Mm, I, yeah, it is fun. my dream project <laughs> that, that hospitality weaving yeah. in and the whole holistic experience of from check-in to check-out, you know, every sign, every touch point, uh, it is my dream project. Michael? So I think for me, I, I as a type of project, um, I really like underdogs. You know, I, I think one of the reasons why I left Nike, I just learned so much there. I learned so much about branding and having a strategy across, you know, they own three or four brands. Um, so I learned so much there, but I left because like I didn't make Nike cool. Like it was already cool. And, and yeah. it was my job <laughs> to just make sure it didn't break. You know, it's like the, like a really well-paid maintenance man. Um, and I, I am attracted to underdogs. I like things that have brands that have these stories. Um, one of the reasons when I went to Sound United and, and worked for Polk and Definitive, my friends were like, what are you doing, dude? Like you worked at Nike and you went to Frog and you're going to these guys? And I was like, no, there's these brands have these like 20, 30 Polk at 40 year history of making really wonderful, special things. They just didn't know anything about design. <laughs> they didn't know how to tell people that their things were special through design. Yeah. And that's so fun. That was so, I can't tell you how fun it was to make that. Um, and so I love that. I love working with clients like that where like, man, there's like this hidden gem. It's covered in like dirt and it's still in like a lump of coal, but I'm I can get it out, you know? <laughs> Last year, we did a big design language system for Pampered Chef and another great one where, you know, it's like a, a brand maybe your mom might be more familiar with, right? In-home selling where they'd have these parties and come into your house and like show you how to cook something and then, you know, sell you some kitchen tools. But how many brands get like invited into somebody's house? And, right. and to me, I was like, yeah, you could look at it as this old stuffy thing or you could look at it the opposite way of like, this is so cool this is there's so much here to work with and the whole brand was you know started by a college professor who was having a hard time teaching and raising her her children and so she quit her job and basically accidentally started this thing and it was all about kind of like empowering housewives to like have their own money and and uh, I get actually a little choked up sometimes I get too involved <laughs> but, but like, and to me I'm like how can I help you tell that story you know, through yeah, the yeah. product. Um, That's awesome. So the, the design language um, 
we came up with it was called embrace and it was all about this um all the products had this form that hugs so it's like these two shapes that interlock and it was to represent the two sides like there's the helping people at home learn how to cook better right how, how to make healthier better meals at home and then the other side was um the local sales associate who comes in your home right and like how do we like get them to interface so i mean and it, it could be as meaningful as you want it to be and, and maybe nobody outside of the company ever even knows that but you know that's okay like i would say just, that's enough right that drives then how people think about where they work and how they're connected to the mission yeah Thank you both for, for that. And thank you, Michael, for joining us today. My pleasure. Yeah, listeners, check out Michael's awesome work designing objects and experiences people love. Uh, visit michaeldetulo.com. Now it's time for our weekly dose of good design, where we share examples of good and impactful design we've experienced recently. I'll kick us off. I have a fun one this week. So uh, London-based designers Camille Benoit and Mariana Gela are friends and fellow paper artists. And like many of us, they felt trapped during the lockdown and they love to travel and they needed a new way to travel. And um, so they came up, they started reading Invisible Cities and imagine Marco Polo's journeying to the east and all the awe that he had in his travels. And so to capture that feeling, they created these beautifully intricate paper sculptures. Uh, and they called it Invisible Cities. And they're inspired by real world architecture, movies and music. And the results are these like ethereal, whimsical narrative sculptures that are really begged to be explored for all that detail and imagination they put into it. And when you look at them, it's like, it's really hard to believe that they're paper and that they're just gorgeous, super fun. Uh, the artist said, this project can for the moment only be admired through a screen, but we think it is important to see the sculptures in real life and interact with them. Moving around these cities provides a chance to understand their complexity. The cities are paper sculptures, but they have now become objects of contemplation for us. You can see a handful of the Invisible Cities images as well as a little video of their process on our Instagram feed at Design Museum Everywhere. All right, Jennifer, you're next. All right, well, so uh, in, in Portland, Oregon, where I live, uh, we have a design or an agency crush on another agency called Murmur Creative. Hmm. Uh, and they put on a poster show last year, was their first inaugural event. And of course it was in person, this year it was virtual. But uh, the proceeds of the poster show go to a specific nonprofit. And this year, the recipient of that was um, Raphael House. And Raphael House provides wraparound services for survivors of domestic violence. And, you know, with the stay at home order and, you know, what we're living in right now, it's more important than ever that those services are available. So what they do is they put a call out to the creative community. So designers, artists, or agencies, and you can respond to this call and you can design a poster. And then the poster is 
uh, you had, you print them high end and that's your commitment, right? And then they do uh, a limited print edition. And then they held this event to reveal the posters online. And the thing that was so cool about it for us was um, that the prompt, the theme for the poster this year uh, was um, culture of empowerment. And everyone gets to interpret that. So everyone gets the same prompt. And then you see 12 to 15 posters that respond to it that are completely different and completely imaginative. And it's just, it was so inspiring. And uh, the posters are on sale to the end of the month through the end. Oh yeah, listeners, check that out. We'll post the link for sure. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Great, that's our show. Thank you again to Jennifer Bryan and Michael DeTulo for joining us this week. Check out our episode page to find links to some of the things we discussed today. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're there, make sure to pick up your tickets for Design Night Live, our special event celebrating design impact. You're not going to want to miss this big virtual design party. It's going to be awesome. We have a lot of fun things planned. It's all happening on September 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. So grab your tickets and tune in. Remember, it's free for members. Find us on social media. We'd love to hear from you. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. On Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. And we're on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. If you're a new listener, first, hi. Second, be sure to subscribe so you always have design is everywhere in your feed. Plus, subscribing and rating helps more people find our new show. This episode was written by me, Sam Aquilano, and produced by Ryan Flom. We're edited by David Green. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. From the whole team here at the Design Museum, thanks for listening, and we'll talk again next week.